0: Good morning, Grace Point. It's great to see you today. Welcome to those of you joining us online also. Um, Aaron's not here this morning on purpose. For the council of West Smith, our district superintendent, it was decided that it'd be best if he wasn't here this morning, and so he, uh, he's enjoying a weekend away while this vote takes place, so if you're wondering about what's going on there, last week we begin um, our third set. Of uh, three messages in our Winning the War in Your Mind series. And we're looking at this uh, principle of reframe. Um, how do we reframe our lives in such a way that we see? Our experiences through a biblical filter. And then last week we looked at how to do that uh, with your past, how to reframe your past biblically so that it begins to serve you as wisdom. And and, um, today what we're going to do is take this reframing a a step further and we're going to look at how do we reframe our lives, understanding that God is sovereign, that He has a perspective and a plan that frequently we don't have. In fact, God's plans are frequently not your plans. And so we're going to begin to Look at this reframing in that kind of a context. And I want to begin this morning by sharing some of how this has worked in my own life by just sharing a, a bit of a testimony with you uh, this morning. I begin, um, well, I'll, I'll go back to where I graduated. I, I, at 23, I graduated from the University of Minnesota with a uh, Bachelor of Mechanical Engineering degree. And at that time, I, I felt strongly that God was calling me into ministry. And I remember having the conversation with Vicky about that. We had just had Elizabeth, our first child was just born. And uh, it took a lot of resources and time for me to get through school. And uh, she and I both concluded that I needed to work for a while. That it'd be good for me to have some life experience, uh, know how to live as a husband, be in a functional home maybe do some child raising, and um, then if the call of God was still there, I would, I would continue to pur- pursue uh, a, a, a ministry education at that time. Um, plus, there was a pragmatic, I don't know how many, how many of you are pragmatic, I'm pragmatic. You know what, we needed money. You know why? Because you like to eat, Amen. And so at that point, I was uh, uh, needing to, to just get after it and, and go to work. And, and then Vicky gave me an admonishment that um, really, I think, was a key in my understanding of how to do life in a way that brought, I think, glory to God. She challenged me. She said, why would you wait for a degree to become a minister of Christ? You're one right now. Just do it. Just become one that lives it uh, where you find yourself planted. And so I begin um, my career at 3M with this attitude, I'm going to be a holy experiment for God. I'm going to live my Christianity um, out loud. And I had a lot of success at 3M, especially in ways that I never really expected. Um, but, But some of this really began to make itself apparent to me when I was a young man there, and um, I got assigned a really large project. So I'm only like 26 years old, and I get assigned uh, this $8 million maker project, and I was gonna be the project engineer on the design and implementation, the startup of this, this large machine in Knoxville, Iowa. But the thing that was making this even more challenging, not the scope. The scope, I don't know if you've ever done something large like that. It's just overwhelming. There's hundreds and hundreds of of projects you have to do within the project. Not only was the scope large, they wanted to automate the whole thing. It was like a new, it was like new territory for 3M. And they wanted to run this huge machine that was two, two stories tall, several hundred feet long with three people. And so they wanted everything automated from the front to the end of the machine. The former project engineer who had just begun the project and then took a supervisor's job, I said he bailed out on the project, um, had hired some R&D folks from 3M Center, uh, research and development. I don't know if any of you ever worked with those folks. And if you are a, a, a professor here from the college that works in R&D, I don't mean to slam you or anything like that. They're not the most... Grounded people. They tend to think differently. Well, they, 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 he had hired this group of people to come in and to begin to do a part of the automation of this machine that was essential for its success. And they had been working on this for several months. So when I got there, the very first thing is I went out and looked at the machine. And I realized, oh, we're in big trouble. Uh, they had uh, computers back, this is in the early 80s, okay? Okay. So some of you think computers are normal. <sighs> They're kind of not. At any rate, so this is back in the early 80s, right? And uh, they had computers hooked up to this coder all over the place, and they were running programs, and they said, the operator just has to come over here and put this code, do this, this, and that. Then the operator has to come over, and put that. I said, these operators are high school graduates. They've never seen a computer in their life. I you think they can do this? Oh, it's easy. I'm thinking... You got a PhD, and you can't even explain it to me, right? And we're going through this process uh, of talking, and I think, you're not going to work. Now, the problem was, they had spent $120,000 up to that point doing this, much of the project that didn't work yet, because it still didn't work, but they thought they would make it work. You you see where I'm at with this? Now, if if you're wondering if $120,000 is a lot of money, today, that would be like spending $380,000, So they spent $380,000, and they still didn't have this thing working, and they wanted operators to do something. I thought, there's no way they can do this. There's just no way. So you know, I did what any person would do, right? I said, go back to St. Paul, you're done. I had no solution, but I thought, you're not a solution. So this is like a key part of the automation of this machine. So I do what any person does. I ignore it for a while because i got like hundreds of other things to do on this machine, literally. So I just throw myself into doing this stuff. All the time I'm doing it, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, how am I going to solve this? How am I going to solve this? You ever been there in your life? Where you're going through life, and you, you know you're living it, and you're doing what you can do, but in the back of your mind, you've got this looming kind of thing going on that's just rattling around that's kind of like a shadow over your, your life. Um, anyway, God bless me with a great team there. But all, all the time of working there, I was thinking on this project, and at, we got towards the end of the machine, and I thought, oh, we still have a solution for this, and that thing won't work without the solution. And um, then I began to look at some advertisement. That's what you do when you're desperate. You start looking at pamphlets, right? Hoping someone has a solution. And interesting enough, I was looking through some of this, and I came upon a system made by Rosemont Engineering. Um, it was called the ham scan system at the, at the time. It was a camera feedback system that would do the automation that I needed. It was just a perfect fit. In fact, uh, it was amazing. But here's another amazing thing about it. I had interned for two years at Rosemont Engineering. All right? That's a divine connection, you guys. I knew this equipment that Rosemont was selling like the back of my hand. I had been in some of the design teams that designed some of the very instrumentation that we use in the machine that I was putting in at 3M. And I called them up, and I said, can you make these couple modifications to it electronically? And they go, well, I don't know. I said, I know you can. You just I know you can do this, because I helped design this. You, you can do this. And the guy came back, because he's just a salesman. You know, they just want to sell you the product. Um, he said, yeah, we can do it. So right at the end of the machine, we, I, guess, I kind of fall, fell into the solution. It cost $16,000. And I know none of your heart, any of your engineers, so this doesn't resonate with your soul like it does with me. This was just Divine. It was, it was this divine coincidence, I call it divine coincidence, that I don't take for granted anymore, that God does frequently in your life if you're tuned into him. Um, and I knew this was no accident, because I had had multiple things like this happen uh, on that machine, and God was demonstrating to me over and over and over again that he was at work in my life, even when I didn't know he was, that he was sovereign over my affairs, that he had a perspective and a plan that frequently I did not even realize that he had, and so so this was a grand experience. I tell you what, folks, I got solutions to engineering problems in my dreams. Now, people can say you have an overactive mind. Eh, it wasn't that kind of a dream, all right? It was where I would vividly see, oh, this is how we solve this. Okay, gotcha. You know what I mean? And, and it, was, it was just kind of this amazing interaction. So then I complete that machine and all that kind of stuff, and I'm still kind of thinking about this call the ministry all this time that this is going on, but at the same time, I'm having all the success at 3 m and I'm seeing this interactiveness of God in my life. So then I, I transferred to the medical plant here in Brookings, South Dakota in 1990. That's what brought me here to begin with, um, it was, was, was taking a job here at this plant as a resident engineering uh, supervisor. And so I found this church. Now, do you still, do you, do you, you know, there's a lot of divine coincidences they're not coincidences because they're divine. So I come here and I start going to church here. At the same time, I'm having all the success over at 3M. And at the same time, I'm having this call of God so heavy on my heart. So one day, I went in to talk to the pastor of the church at the time here, who's Tim Purcell. Some of you know Tim. I bet you a lot of you have no idea who I'm talking about. At any rate, he said, hey, we can get you into a program that just came out from Indiana Wesleyan University where you can become a distance learner. You have to have a college degree. You do. You have to be above 28 years of age to get into the program. You are. And then you can do all this distance. Why did you just start it out? He was super excited, more excited than I was. And so I began to take those classes. Now, I was talking to Vicky about all this thing here just the other day. Um, we were reminiscing. And she said, I never thought you would finish those classes. That's why I supported you so much. She's not in here right now. But you know, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah, little does she know. So at any rate, I had this dual system kind of going on in my life. I'm kind of pursuing these these ministerial classes on the side, and I'm doing my job at 3M. I'm seeing God's hand work in my life at 3M in a mighty way. I'm thinking, I'm in a quandary here. I don't know what to do. And then I got this next job level at 3M in the plant over here. I became the plant engineering manager, which was a great promotion. And I remember distinctly the first day going into that office And I'm sitting down at the desk, and I'm thinking, wow, this is something. I don't have to work a lot of overtime. I get paid an insane amount of money. I can just tell about 150 other people what to do. I thought I'd arrived, right? Some of you don't know. Should I laugh? Should I not laugh at that? Do these people really think like that? Yes, they do. So I go to sit down at the desk, and it was almost like an audible voice that I heard. And it was I'm sure it was God speaking to me. And he said, don't set your affections on this place. I have other plans for you. And I went, what? I said, what "What out loud? Because it was so real. And I said, no way. No way. I'm there. I arrived. It's been 15 years, or at that point, 13 years getting here, right? And I I just couldn't understand, you know, what was going on. Um, But see, God's plans for you may not be your plans for you. God and His sovereignty often have his different plans for His people than they have for themselves. And I thought, man, God, this is a great job, though, and I could do a lot of good here. And, well, needless to say, two years down the road, basically had that ministerial degree done, and Tim hired me as an assistant. It was a crazy move. People thought I was crazy. When I told him at three m, I'm going to go do this, and he go, "What are you thinking?" And I go, "I don't know. I think I just have to be obedient to the call of God in my life because God's plans are frequently not your plans. They're not. This is not the way I saw my life working out, but this is probably what I should be doing. Well, here, here's what I, I, where I'm going with all this. I find myself thanking God frequently for my experiences. I had at three m, they were divine. It showed me that God could work in the workplace. That God can work in the interactions you have on a day-by-day day kind of process. I allow God for not allowing me to stay there. I thank God for frequently for decisions that I wanted to make, that he stopped me from making. Right at the end, right before I took this assistant job here... I was beginning to really reevaluate my career there and thought, I need to get back into the technical side of life. I love that side of engineering. I love the raw engineering. I love design. I love the creativity. I want to get back into that. I'm good at it. And I was beginning to look at a job at St. Paul. And I was beginning to seriously consider it, uh, becoming a specialist in in, in web coding, which you guys don't care what I'm saying. Anyway, anyway, so I was seriously looking at that, and then I took this job instead. I, I thank God frequently for, me make, for that decision being made in my life. For, for The other decision wasn't a good decision. You know why? Because I've had 28 years now of just amazing experience in this career path. And it's not. It's a calling. I've had 28 years of watching lives changed. I've had 28 years of watching people give their life to Jesus Christ. It's affected thousands of people over those 28 years. At 3 I affected, you know, 10s, 20s maybe. You know what I mean? And God has allowed me to have a broader influence and a broader, uh, uh, you know, kind of experience as a person. God's plans are frequently not your plans. Are you hearing that? God's plans are frequently not your plans. God is sovereign. He has a perspective and he has a plan that oftentimes we don't even understand nor do we get. If you're going to win the war in your mind, you have to come to that understanding of God being sovereign that his perspective is beyond your perspective and he has a plan that sometimes you don't even understand and you have to praise him for what he does in your life and you have to praise him for what you don't think he does in your life because God is often working in in, in the places of life where you don't even recognize it he simply has a vantage point you don't have I want you to read Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 9 out loud with me. Would you read that with me, please? Here we go. Read this out loud. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So our big thought today is simply this. God is sovereign, and you are to trust that he has perspective and plans you may not understand until later. God is sovereign, and you have to trust that he has uh, perspective and plans that you may not understand until later on in your life. Frequently, I, 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 don't, I can't speak for your experience. I can speak for my experience. Frequently, what happens in the moment doesn't always make sense. You want it to make sense, but frequently, it doesn't make sense until down the road, until you have some years of experience under your belt. Sometimes you and I are just called to trust a sovereign God, realizing that some of the stuff in life you may never understand. You may never gain that kind of perspective that you would like to. You just have to trust God and trust His sovereignty. I love to have answers in life. I, I hate it when I don't have answers. But I've learned sometimes I don't have answers. God has the answers, but I don't have the answers. I just have to trust him, trust his perspective, trust his plans for my life. Sovereign means this. God is ruler of all, possessing absolute power. He made all things. He's not the work of man's hands, nor God of man's imagination. That's being said a lot in our culture. He is not a God of man's imagination. I love what Easton's Bible Dictionary does. uh, says about um, God's sovereignty, how it defines God's sovereignty. It says this His absolute right to do all things according to His own good pleasure. Oh, I love that. God has the absolute right to do all things according to His own good pleasure. Now, the phrase sovereign Lord is used numerous times in the New International Version of the Bible, about 289 times. If you start reading the Bible and looking for it, it's everywhere in the NIV. It's a big concept to understand about who God is. You will see in Christian circles, that's what we're in today. There, there's an agreement on this idea of God's sovereignty that, that God is you know above all, overall, and all that kind of thing. The debate usually is how much does He actually control us? And how much free will is there uh, that we can really truly uh, manifest in our lives. And um, I'm not going to get into that debate because it usually leads to intense argumentation that gets us nowhere as people. But what I hope we see today is simply this. If we're going to win the war in our minds, if we're really going to take every thought captive uh, to Christ, if we're going to begin to really truly become people who understand and think about what we think about, we have got to accept this idea that God is sovereign and has a perspective and has plans for you that you may not even realize. Amen. You can't see your life right, and you can't do your life right, and you won't understand at all what's going on until you have the sovereignty understanding of God who has a perspective and plans that you may not have. See, at times, as a sovereign Lord, God doesn't give you what you want. He may even allow trials. Recognize and thank God that he knows what is best for you, and he knows what you need. He doesn't necessarily give you what you want, he gives you what you need. Do you believe that? Doesn't sound very American, does it? We want what we want, but God gives us what we need. Because in his sovereignty, he knows what is best for us. And he has a perspective and plans that we may not even understand. I want us to reflect on some thoughts from Greg Rochelle. This is from his book, Winning the War. In your mind, listen to what he says. I think these are good words. We are wise when we trust that he is working, even when we aren't aware of it. We are also wise when we trust the way he is working, even when it isn't the way we want Because instead of feeling like a victim of random circumstances in a chaotic world, you see that you have a God who has protected you often from yourself in ways you didn't even realize. So what I want to do today to conclude this message, and I'm I'm wrapping it up rather quickly here this morning, is I want to give you two examples from the Bible um, where you see these... uh, people trusting or not trusting God's perspective and plan. First is the example of Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament is born into a blended family. We don't think of it that way, but there's multiple women here involved and one father. So he has that blended family dynamic going on, which is usually a very difficult situation. And on top of that, he's considered by his father to be his favorite. Listen, if you have kids and you have a favorite, don't tell them. Just do them all a favor and don't say anything. Just love them the same and say they're all the same. And, and the, you know, in the remoteness of whatever you can do, whatever. But, but don't, don't. That's bad family dynamics. Just don't do that. And then on top of that, being the favorite causes of jealousy of his brothers. On top of that, he has dreams. And, and he, he, he's not old enough and mature enough and wise enough yet to know when to share something and when not to share something. That's kind of family dynamics, isn't it? We learn on each other. And he tells his, his siblings, his brothers, and his mom and dad, that he had a dream of them all bowing down to him. Well, needless to say, that didn't sit well with the brothers, did it? And so the brothers take an opportunity uh, to uh, capture uh, Joseph, pretend that he was killed by some wild beast, and then sell him, in, uh, sell him to um, some, some Israelites that were happened to be going uh, by. And so we see this favored son go from that status uh, to slave. And he, he experiences some of the worst kind of trial you ever experienced in your life. Betrayal. Betrayal by your family. There's hardly anything that gets worse than that. He's betrayed by those who should love him and, and look out for its welfare. Instead, they betray him. So he's sold uh, to this guy named Potiphar. And he becomes the servant to Potiphar. And we're told there The Lord was with him, and and Potiphar's household was blessed because of, of Joseph's presence. So we see that even in this adversity, God has a perspective and a plan for Joseph's life that Joseph may not realize yet. And then um, Joseph's doing really well until Potiphar's uh, wife gets the hots for him. And if you read the story, she makes some advances on him, which he denies. Well, then she turns the table on him, and she accuses him of sexual advancement against her. This infuriates Potiphar, and he sends Joseph to prison. So now Joseph not only experienced betrayal, he's experienced false accusation and slander. The list is growing, isn't it? He ends up in prison. And we're told again the Lord is with him, and the prison prospers because of him. And so now a couple guys come to prison who fell out of favor with, with, the, uh, with Pharaoh, and they had some dreams. Joseph has been given the ability to interpret dreams. He interprets the dreams for these two guys and says, Remember me, I've been placed here unfairly, unjustly. Remember me. Well, the two people go back, once killed, once reinstated their position. That one promptly forgets Joseph two years. Two years, he sits there in prison, forgotten. Have you ever been forgotten in your life? Have you ever been talking to somebody and you just feel dismissed, like they don't care? Like they're not even listening to you, you're talking, they just kind of walk away in the middle of a sentence? Doesn't that irritate you? Two years, he got irritated like that. So now what has he experienced? He's experienced betrayal, he's experienced slander, he's experienced false accusation, and he's experienced being forgotten. Anybody relate to this guy? But God's working. God is sovereign. God has a perspective and a plan. I'm sure Joseph didn't say, when I grow up, I want to be sold into slavery. I want to dwell with a man whose wife falsely accused me of sexual advancement. I want to be thrown into prison. I want to spend some time there with people, interpret their dreams for them, and then they promptly forget me. That's my dream. That wasn't what he was thinking he would ever do. God's plans are frequently not your plans. God had positioned Joseph so that he could save his family. From a famine. And so Joseph is remembered, When Pharaoh has a dream. No one can interpret it. And the guy goes, oh, I remember this dude in prison. He can interpret it. So Joseph comes and interprets his dream for Pharaoh that there's a famine coming and all this kind of stuff. And Pharaoh believes him and makes him second uh, in command of all uh, of Egypt and says, you're the guy. Just take care of it. You, have, you interpret the dream. You're in charge of everything. So now he's in a position to help because his family the family of Jacob, his father, the family of Israel, is going to go through the same famine and experience death and star- or starvation and death and now joseph 's placed in a position to save them from that famine and, and so um, so his, his brothers, by the way, did come to him bowing just as he had dreamed, and he saved them from this starvation of the famine. but as the, clo- as the story closes out, Jacob, his dad. Jacob, who's also called Israel, dies. Listen now to Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. Listen to this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they... Sent word to Joseph saying, "Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph: I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they've committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father." When the message came to him, Joseph wept. Why? Because he had already forgiven them. Did you see? You, 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 if you're going to have, listen, friends, it's not really in the notes. I've seen unforgiveness destroy people. It doesn't hurt anybody but the holder of it. If, you're unforgiv- if you have an unforgiving spirit towards a wrong that's been committed to you, it may be justified. But as long as you hold on to that, well, who does it hurt? You. If we're going to have the mind of God, if we're going to think right, we can't hold on to this kind of bitterness and unforgiveness that oftentimes um, is so prevalent in our culture. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves. They're bowing again. Man, they're bowing like crazy to him. That dream is being coming true all over the place. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Now listen to this. You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children and reassured them and spoke kindly to them. See, Joseph reframed his ordeals, forgiving the offenses of his brother, recognizing that he was part of God's plan for saving Israel. He just reframed it all in that context. He said, what you intended for harm, what his brothers intended for harm, God is used for good. He saw his situation and he saw his experiences entirely differently because he refrained them in the context of God and what God was up to and that he trusted God was sovereign and God had a perspective and a plan that he didn't have necessarily for his life. Twelve chapters of Genesis are devoted to the story of Joseph. Chapter 37 and then chapters 39 through 50. It's a huge section of Genesis it, it, devoted to this guy's uh, life. Um, um, he, and it's a story of a man staying true to his God, trusting the sovereignty of God, that God had a perspective and a plan that maybe he didn't understand, even though his life was full of betrayal, slander, false accusation, and being forgotten. He chose to stay faithful uh, uh, to God. Um, and these kind of experiences are tremendously hard. In fact, if you're going through one of those right now, my prayer is for you that you stand fast in God and trust in him. God probably is working in ways that you don't even recognize right now in your life. Will you trust him for that? Will you stay faithful in, in the midst of it? Through all this mistreatment, Joseph trusted God's perspective and plan, and he's a powerful example of reframing life, trusting in a sovereign God who has a vantage point that we simply don't have in our lives, all right? Second example, and then we're going to, I'm going to turn this over uh, to Catherine. Except uh, The second example is Israel. And Pastor Aaron talked on Israel in some detail here a few weeks ago, how uh, they, when they're having their wilderness experience and the exodus experience, would so frequently fall into this pattern of sin, this, this rut uh, uh, of complaining, doubt, and distrust, it happened over and over and over again. It became their go-to response to any hardship that they were facing. They, they, the Israelites seemed to quickly forget the benefits of God, the miraculous deliverance of God, the protection of God, the leading of God, and they would murmur about not having enough food and water. At one point in Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, they complained they want meat, they want meat, they want meat. So God said, you want meat? I'm going to give you meat until it comes out of your nostrils, until you loathe it. God gave them what they wanted, but, they, but that, that wasn't what they needed. In fact, Psalm 106 clearly says this. It gets at the, that, you know, when you get something you want, sometimes it's the worst thing that can happen to you as a, as a person. And I find verses 13 to 15 especially interesting in Psalm 106. Listen to this. They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent what? Leanness to their soul. Leanness to their soul. Some commentaries I read here on Psalm 106 on, on these very verses said, In their lust they devoured the meat, the quail that God was sending to them. Without proper preparation, their craving ended in sickness and disease and death. He gave them what they wanted, but it resulted in them wasting disease. I love how the King James Version just stated it here, and that's what I read to you this morning. He gave them what they wanted, but it resulted in leanness of their soul. So God gave the Israelites what they wanted, but it led to leanness of the soul. Um, Do you want that in your life? Do you want leanness of the soul? No one's going to say yes to that, right? You better now. you're in church, amen? Sometimes God doesn't give us what we want because it's not what we need. And if he gives us what we want... It'll, send, it'll result in leanness of the soul, uh, a wasting uh, disease in our lives. Remember this, friends. God has a vantage point you simply do not have. He's sovereign. He has a perspective and he has plans for you that you may not even realize. They may unfold as your life goes on. I've been seeing that frequently in my life, especially as I've gotten older. I have this vantage point of looking back and saying, whoa, God, this was a key moment and I could see your hand leading me here and I could see your hand leading me here. You know, and I could walk through my life and see the the sovereignty of God over and over again. So here's a reframe exercise that you can go through this week. I'm gonna actually share this with you and then Catherine's gonna come up. Relinquish control of your life to God. Frequently do that. There's a relinquishing of your control when you give your life to Lord Jesus Christ when you're born again. But I think daily almost we've got to relinquish control of our lives to God. Declare, your ways are higher than my ways, God. And most likely you're going to just have to do this over and it needs to become something you do over and over and over and over again. You don't get the promotion you want. Relinquish control of God. You don't, you don't get the move where you want to. Relinquish, you know, that control to God. You know, you think I'm going to do this, this, and this, but instead you're going to do this, this, and this. Relinquish that control to God. Understand that God has a vantage point you do not have. Look back over your life and thank God for moving in ways that were beyond your understanding. Always reframe your understanding of the past by asking God to reveal to you how he wants to use it for good, what he wants to do in that thing in your life, and how he wants to use it for good. Then ask God to keep you from seeking after that which may result in the leanness of your soul. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads? Lord God, I want to thank you for uh, this topic matter today. Um, I think, man, Joseph was masterful at doing this, Lord. And uh, of course, that was your anointing on his life, and you gave him even the ability to do that, Lord. And we thank you for that. I pray, Lord, today that uh, we would reframe our experiences in the understanding that you're sovereign, that your perspective and plans are frequently not understood by us in the moment we're living, And that we just have to simply learn to trust you, Lord. And we have to learn to always put ourselves, relinquish control to you, Lord, and to put ourselves under your care. I just pray, Lord, for anyone in here uh, this morning that's going through something really difficult right now, God, that they would just be ones who would stand firmly in your sovereignty, Lord, trusting you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you, Jesus, that you have a vantage point we don't have. We just trust you in your name. Amen.